Celebration Community Church family, we just want to welcome you to this podcast. And, and any of you who this has been passed along to, we decided that it would be important for us to have this podcast about the upcoming vote at the elections on August 2nd, and particularly regarding the amendment for uh, the abortion issue. And so what I have done is I've gotten three of my friends together here uh, from Celebration Community Church, uh, people who I feel are very well-versed in the Bible, people who I feel are very intelligent, and people who I know are passionate about the right to life. And so we are here today, and before we get started, I want to give you an opportunity to meet these people that are here with me. There are four of us here this evening. I'm going to have you meet them. They'll tell you a little bit about themselves, and then we'll kind of talk about what the goals of this podcast are and go from there. So with that, uh, Jess Albin is with us this evening. Jess, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, everyone. Again, my name is Jess, and I live here in Hayes, Kansas with my husband and our two sons who are eight and nine. Um, I work at Fort Hayes State University. I work in the counseling center as a counselor and a case manager. Our family has been involved here at Celebration Church for about a year now, and we've just absolutely loved our time here and have been really blessed to become a part of this church family. We also have Annie Herbert with us this evening. Annie, tell us about yourself. So my name is Annie, and I've actually been going to Celebration Community Church for 20 years now, which is kind of crazy to think about um, how long I've been blessed to be a part of the church. And my husband and I live here in Hayes. We have two wonderful daughters, and I actually work in the electric industry. Probably not needed to explain what I do because it's pretty complicated, and <laughs> we'd get off topic quickly, but um, appreciate being asked to be a part of this this evening and um, be a part of spreading truth. Okay, thank you. Matt Dryling, I am uh, one of the leaders of the men's ministry here at Celebration. Uh, I also lead the uh, adult Bible study on Wednesday evenings. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. My name is Brant Rice. I'm the senior pastor here at Celebration Community Church in Hayes and Colby. And I have been a pastor here for 21 years. I started in youth ministry and went into teaching ministry in 2008 and became senior pastor in 2017. And I find myself one of the most blessed people that I know to be part of a church that is focused on truth and who uh, that is full of people who are ready to really take off in their faith. And that's something that we have seen the last few years at our church is God has brought people into this church who are leaders, brought people into this church who are facilitators of growth. And so we're so blessed by that, and I'm just so excited of where God has brought our church. So what I would like to do is I would like to, first of all, just kind of give you what my overall goals of this podcast are. First of all, I want to make clear our uh, to our church family where we stand on this amendment and the issue itself of abortion. I'd like to give us an opportunity to give biblical examples and scripture that talks about God's design for life and the sanctity of life. I want to make sure that our people know what this 
amendment is about and what it's not about. I know there's a lot of information out there that I have heard that is inaccurate. We want to make sure that we're not part of that inaccuracy. We want to make sure that we're checking each other on the things that we share here, but I want to talk about what it is and what it's not. I want to give our people a resource that they can pass along to others. I don't think that People who hear this from Celebration will keep this to themselves. I know that this conversation will be out there, not just amongst people in Kansas, but, you know, Kansas is the only, is the first state since Roe versus Wade was overturned. This is the first state to have a vote on it. Kentucky, I think, has one coming up in November, but we are by far the first that is uh, just having a vote on this. So that's important. But I think this will go outside of the walls of our church and outside of even our state, knowing that this is a nationwide issue, not just a Kansas issue. And then I want to encourage our people to vote for biblical values. And I know there's a question out there that some people have, isn't it illegal for a pastor or for a church to promote things like this? And the answer to that is no. Uh, it is illegal for me to stand on the platform at church and to tell people who to vote for, or to campaign for someone who is running for an elected office. However, when it comes to things like this, it's completely and totally legal, and in fact, it's necessary for us to talk about things like that. So that's kind of where we're going this evening. I have a list of questions. I'm going to do my best to do more listening than talking. That will be a new thing for me, but it is something that I want to do because I know that that you guys have some amazing perspectives to share in this. And I don't want this just to be about what I think. So with that, what I'd like to do at this point in time is to say a word of prayer, and then we'll get started with our questions. Lord, thank you so very much that you have given us the freedom to meet here and to talk about something that is of utmost importance, and that something is the life that you have created. Lord, I just know that this is a topic that is dividing our state and dividing our country, dividing families. And Father, I just pray that this podcast is not something that divides, but that it's something that gets people to think about their values, to think about what God's desire is for life. Lord, I just pray that truth will prevail. Lord, that's what we're here for. We're here, and it's all about truth. It's all about your truth. It is not something that is is different from person to person. Truth is truth, and things are either true or they're false. And Lord, we just ask that you would touch hearts, that people would be able to see the hearts of the people in this podcast so that they would understand that this is done out of love this is not done to manipulate. This is not uh, done to try to push people into a decision. But Father, my prayer for my friends hearing this podcast is that they would be prayerful about seeking you in this decision. And we thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's talk about the upcoming vote I know that we don't all have the same exact uh, perspective, though I, I know we all have the same end goal when it comes to this amendment. Um, let me ask this. How educated do you think people are as a whole about what's in this amendment, like what the amendment says? So as I was reviewing the questions for this podcast, um, 
and this was the first one, I immediately felt very convicted in my spirit as I reflected upon the conversations I have with friends who may or may not view things in the same way that I do or share the same worldview that our family does. And I thought about how many fewer conversations about this issue I had than maybe as compared to the recent bond issue in our community. I knew well what nearly all of my good friends thought about the bond and if they were going to vote for it and if they were going to vote against it. And I think that really revealed to me how sensitive this topic is and how much more often I do need to be speaking out about it because they didn't have a really clear answer about how educated I thought people around me were or weren't. Um, I'm sure I know where my good friends stand, but in regards to people who share a different worldview, I really didn't know. So do you think that people generally know the points, the, the bullet points in this amendment, or is it something that, that a lot of people are going to just vote no if they're pro-choice pro and yes if they're pro-life? Yes, I would agree with that statement. I think it's become very black and white for people. It's either you're for or you're against, where if we went through it and said, let me ask you some questions. Do you feel like it would be important to medically protect someone going through this? They would probably answer, yes, I do. Do you feel like it would be important um, if a child was going through this procedure that their parents would know? Gosh, that's a medical procedure. What parent doesn't want to know about their child? Yes. And all of a sudden, when you start asking the questions in which the talking points, uh, the amendment addresses, you, you start to educate, you know, and, and help people realize this is not just a yes versus no. There's a lot more to it than that. Uh, so I guess from my experience, most of what I've heard is th that's the only issue of legalizing abortion or it not being legalized in the state of Kansas. So a lot of false out there. So, so to give people a background, just in case they don't know this, there was a 2019 ruling by the Kansas Supreme Court that created a nearly unlimited right to abortion in Kansas. Kansas has become, like California, a destination state for abortions because of this decision. And this amendment simply reverses that uh, decision back in 2019. And as it stands today, uh, unelected judges are the ones that will decide the fate of abortion limits in Kansas. And so let's look at the five main things that this uh, amendment includes. So what are we really talking about? We are What we're not talking about is whether this will make abortion illegal in Kansas. That is not what this amendment's about, though I feel that there's an overarching belief that that's what this will do. Vote yes, and a, a abortion will be abolished in Kansas. That's not how it works. There are several other steps that would need to happen in order for that to happen. Missouri is one state that abortion is almost completely illegal in, uh, which again makes Kansas being a bordering state a destination state. So let's look at the regulations that are at stake here. The first thing is this, and, and this is one of these things I want to talk to you guys about, because parental notification, it says that parents 
and not abortion doctors or traffickers will help women or girls with the decision of whether to or whether not to have an abortion. Looking at parental notification, how do you all feel when it comes to not just abortion, but any major medical decision? Do you feel that parents need to be part of that decision-making process? And if so, why? If not, why not? I strongly feel that it's important for a child to have a parent or a trusted loved one or a guardian present to help them make decisions, especially given what we know physiologically about a child's brain, that their prefrontal cortex, which is where they're making all of their best decisions, isn't yet fully developed. And so I think even as a grown adult in a situation where we feel very scared and intimidated and threatened, we're prone to making decisions that we later regret. And so even more so for a child who's afraid or feels victimized or has made a decision that they know was wrong, they really need their parents there to be able to guide them and and help them see beyond just what's happening today and the next day, but five years from now, 10 years from now, how am I going to feel about this decision? Yeah, that's good. Thanks for that, Jess. So parental notification, any of the rest of you have any input on top of what she said right there, judging by your body language, that's a no. So that's the first thing that, that this amendment would make it law that parents would be notified before an abortion is, is happening with someone who's a minor. So the second part of this amendment is something that's going to increase. And this is one of the things when it comes to commercials that you hear on the radio or see on TV that I think really gets tweaked in such a way to turn it into the government trying to control things. Really what this amendment would ask is that abortion clinics would be sanitized, they would be clean, they would be safe. And so again, that's one of those things that are important for us to look at as one of the things that it's proposing, is that there would be regulations. I'd like to know your input on that. Matt, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, you know, when I look at this list, when, when it came out, I got to be honest, it was it was kind of hard for me to look at it just because I had gone to the pro-choice um, uh, question. Well, it really wasn't a question and answer. It was a monologue where they had a Zoom meeting with an abortion doc from Wichita. Um, I think it was an ACLU attorney and then two other um, abortion groups that were advocates for abortion. Mm -hmm. And they went through these things here and they basically called all this misinformation. They said that this is just the pro-life trying to scare people into getting them away from abortion. And so, um, you know, I just, I honestly don't know, um, you know, that the abortion doc that was on there said, hey, our clinics are clean and this is all just misinformation. These people are just trying to scare you. None of this is true. And so, um, you know, I don't have honestly any uh, I don't have any experience or any expertise in really any of, of that there. So I don't know that I would be able to um, give you any answer other than the one thing I did observe there when they would say stuff like, you know, the, pro, the pro-life people are just trying to scare you with this type of thing. Um, you know, don't fall into it. Then they would turn around and say something like, 
uh, if this amendment goes through, all the doctors are going to leave Kansas and all the young people are going to leave because abortion's not here. And it just seemed like they, you know, there was this idea there's fear on this side, but then they would try to cause fear with people they were talking to. And so, um, you know, when it comes to this, do I think that should be a must? Absolutely. Do I know of whether or not the standards that are being met? I, I don't have any expertise in that and wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't really have an informed opinion okay. on it. Let me let me ask it in the, in this way, and then Annie, I know you have something to add here. But when we think of medical clinics, when we think of hospitals, when we look at any place that does medical procedures, should we not, no matter what that procedure is, insist in America? We know we know we're in America. That should we not insist? Should it not be a given that there would be an expectation that no matter what procedure, whatever surgery happens, that there would be the utmost care given to make sure that something is sterile and sanitized and safe? Yeah, I think that was kind of going to be my point, Brand. Is you're not going to go into any other procedure and have any less expectations, and. To Matt's point of the Zoom that he listened to, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I have not firsthand been to a clinic to witness that, right. but my thoughts are this. Even if it's not true, why wouldn't you still want to protect that for your patient? If it's about protecting women, right. that, 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 that's wouldn't my point. sanitation and, and safety be part part of that? Right, and, and would you want to take that risk? Maybe that's true for his clinic. I, mean, right. I don't know if he's walked through every clinic right. in Kansas to be able to say the same. Well, I know there was a big thing with a with a clinic in Kansas City, and this is what kind of makes this a really good touch point, is that there were horrific conditions at an abortion provider's clinic, and I don't know a lot of details about that, but I do know that that's a fact. Right, and I feel like if they were smart in their argument, they would have actually agreed with this point and said, you know, this is a place where we agree. This is where we can agree. This is where we can agree. Would you not say the same thing would be true for parental notification, though? I would like to think, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I lured you into that you, one No, right it's there. okay. I mean, yes, I would like to think that that's the case, but I don't, yeah. I don't know that people right. would feel that strongly about that because of the protections... Right. That you now see um, of children that sure, I, I guess they call them protections, but I would right. say limitations now of now what you know, I guess where people are trying to protect children's rights without parents being involved. I guess yes. is what I'm trying to True. say. True. Oh, all over the place. We see that not just in the abortion issue. So parental notification. That's part one. Part two of the amendment: uh, abortion clinic sanitation, safety inspection, and the third one is probably. I would guess, in my opinion, the most emotionally charged of all of these, and that is that it would put restrictions on or give the ability to put restrictions on second and third trimester abortions, including dismemberment abortions, which just the thought of that in itself makes me almost physically sick to think about taking a live baby and, and ripping it apart. And I don't even know else how else to say that. That's what dismemberment is, Matt. Yeah. Well, I, you know, when I look at a, an argument like this, I think that, um, you know, uh, the eight hundred pound gorilla that you don't see in a lot of these documents or that were ever talked about at the event I went is whether or not this is a person. Mm-hmm. And um, if this is a person, whether it's the second trimester, third trimester, 
or conception, that's a person that should have equal rights of protection, just like everyone else. And so, um, you know, I, you know, I, I get the emotional part of this. I understand it. It is brutal. It is in, you know, from a Christian worldview perspective, it's murder. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, any sort of murder should be, um, should be treated in a way that we treat any other, any other type of murder. And so whether it's dismemberment, whether it's doing some sort of taking a pill that creates some chemical reaction within the mother to basically burn up, uh, whatever tissues there and, and to pass it. Uh, yeah, I think it's all, it's all wrong from a, from a Christian perspective. Right. And, th- and that's a tough one to, to argue. Um, talking about life, talking about, um, when life starts. Even growing up, I remember the argument that so many people who were pro-choice would use is that life does not begin at conception. And But yet there seemed to me to not be really a, a exactness of this is when the pro-choice people believe life begins. Matt, I know that you have used the phrase with me and I know that you have studied this extensively, that science is not on their side. Could you explain that a little? Sure. Well, I mean, if you go to the, you know, the American College of Pediatrics and you look at their March 2017 uh, description of when human life begins, they say the predominance of human biological research confirms that human life begins at conception or fertilization. And so back when Roe v. Wade was, was first uh, codified um, as a Supreme Court decision, you know, it was based on the idea that this was a potential life, that science hadn't actually come to the point where science could determine when did life really begin. But it's beyond a scientific fact at this point that there is a distinct human being with distinct um, DNA at the point of fertilization, at the point of conception. And so from all scientific data, that is when life begins. And I think that if you, if you pay attention real closely, you will see that even the, the pro-choice uh, side of this argument has, has come to terms with this because they don't even use a scientific type of argument. For instance, when I was at that, uh, that pro-choice, um, oh, it was a Zoom, Zoom meeting, you know, they never used any type of scientific backing to, to come up with any type of reasoning. The only reasons they gave was uh, it should be a woman's choice, and the abortion doctor uh, said that the American Association of OBGYNs agree that abortion is health care. And so they've moved from the idea that this is any type of, of life situation to it's now a health care decision. And they've just redefined the words to get away from the scientific fact that this is a person from the time of conception. And, and if we, truly, if we try, truly use the language of personhood, that changes everything. And they know that that's why they use the idea of the word fetus and they use the, you know, tissue and all these things you'll see them using because, um, you know, it's like anything, you know, I've used this example before, but before the, um, you know, before the Nazis began, you know, exterminating the Jews, the first thing they had to do was deperson, depersonalize them. They had to first start using languages of them as, as basically that they're the, the uh, pariahs of the society and they're the ones that are dragging society down. And before long, when they took away their personhood with language, then they were able to exterminate them. And I don't think it's any different in what we see right here. You depersonalize the the uh, the person that's in, in the womb, and then once you've depersonalized them, then they're just simply a clump of cells. They're just simply some flesh that, you know what, it's really no big deal. We can just discard it. It's a lot easier to deal with the thought of it when we take the human 
part out of it, isn't it? The humanity out of it, the, the fact that this is someone who is created by God. Are there scriptures that you guys feel are pertinent when it comes to how God sees life? I know the first one that comes to my mind is from Psalm 139, you know, for you created my inmost being and you knit me together in my mother's womb, and just the intricacy of the thought of knitting together cell by cell, tissue by tissue, tendon by tendon. So I think about that Psalm 139 and how God knits us together, and, and that begins, as Matt just stated, that begins at conception, that the, the beginning of the process of creating a human happens in that instant. And when we take the thought of that out, and we try to make it something else, then we don't have to deal with what that really means. And what that really means is that we are taking a life instead of giving God that right, and that is God's right. So what, what about you guys? What, what verses seem to, to really resonate with you when it comes to what the Bible says about life? So Brian, I'll kind of piggyback off of 139. 13, uh, Psalm 139, 13, if you go to verse 16, it says, your eyes saw my unformed body. Mm. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so I think that's important too, to realize when we have the argument of it's just a clump of cells, still life. It's, it's, an, life. it's unformed at that moment, but it happens very quickly, right? So at 16 days, a baby has a heartbeat. Um, brain activity is detected at five weeks, Fingerprints appear by nine weeks, and a baby can actually smile by 12 weeks. So beginning. Yes, right. absolutely. Something that I think is important as Christians, sometimes you'll encounter people who are maybe opposing to your view will try to take your own uh, stance against you. So they might go into saying, okay, well, your Bible says in Genesis 2-7 that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. So life doesn't actually start until you take your first breath. Mm. And so I think it's important that we are not only using the scripture verses, yes, that we know, but let's right. be prepared for those that can be right. taken out of context. And what would your response to that, on be? that So I guess I, I did some looking into, well, what, what would be some of the other scriptural uh, resources that you could use that kind of combats this, right? So let's, let's talk about that verse first. That is a descriptive verse, right, of how God created Adam. Have we? That is not how God creates from their point forward, no, right? No, he, he, he's the only one that the life was breathed into like that. Eve was even a little bit different, right? Right. And he started as presumably an adult. Right, exactly. Like, do we all claim that women are made from the rib of a man? I don't believe so. No, right? So let's use some logic here. Right. That was just to explain the very first man, the very first woman, mm -hmm. and how they were, um, you, you know, created by God. But if you go on to Genesis 2.24, it says, and this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united uh, to his wife so that way they can become one flesh. God explains right there how creation will be, right. you know, continue to be carried out. A couple other verses that I would use, and this works if you are... Uh, combating the breath at first life, or, you know, life at first breath, or just in general talking about how life begins in the womb. 
We can go to the New Testament, uh, Luke 1, 39 through 41, and this is when Mary visits Elizabeth. I think we all know this, but let's think about what it's actually telling us about life. And it says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to the town in the hill countryside of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Life. life. Life is happening right inside of there. So it doesn't say that all human life begins with the breath of air. Um, like I said, just in the same way that women aren't born of the right. rib of a man, you know, to this right. day. It's just describing how the original was was created. And we could go beyond that with science of other creatures who are living without actually taking oxygen. And if you want to go to that, a baby yeah. does take oxygen through the yeah. umbilical cord. It, that's you know? true, yeah. So. One verse um, that God has really been using to direct my thoughts around this conversation and maybe just to take it a little different direction than, um, you know, just reiterating that God is a God of life and that God values human life specifically. Um, but when when the Bible, specifically in First John chapter 2, when John talks about Jesus Christ being the advocate, you know, he really truly is the best example of what it means to be an advocate for life and to be someone who loves justice, someone who proclaims justice. And that's really been directive for me when I think about my role in this conversation and how much easier and simpler it can be to be quiet and to stay quiet about our views around life. Um, But just thinking about who Jesus is, that he is someone who speaks up for those who cannot speak for themselves, who goes out of his way to connect with people and and touch people and have those conversations with people. Um, he, he really is intentional about taking up the cause of those who cannot defend himself. And that's been really convicting and encouraging for me to go out of my way to have these conversations and to defend life. And I'm really thinking about how, um, you know, in, in Isaiah 61, when it talks about how when the spirit of the Lord is upon us, we are proclaiming justice. And that's what we're doing right now. We're proclaiming justice. We're proclaiming what is right and what is true. And that's something that God loves. And if that's something that God loves, then that's something that I really want to be about. That's really good. And you talked about Jesus being the advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. You know, I think so much on the pro-choice side of things, so much is made of the protecting of moms, protecting of women, but yet they leave out the whole idea of protecting someone who can't protect themselves. There are a lot of things that women and girls can do to protect themselves, right? There's nothing that a child in the womb can do to protect itself. And Jesus modeled that really well, as you said, Jess, is is that he came for those who couldn't do it themselves. And we can talk about that when it comes to sin for us. We can talk that talk about that when it, in regards to an unborn child that has absolutely no choice in the matter of whether it lives or dies. Right. And I think that's important when you know when we're hearing that abortion is healthcare. You know, when we right. think about you know, what is the goal of healthcare? What is the goal of, you know, a Hippocratic oath, you know, to, to mm-hmm. do good and to do no harm, right. to preserve life is the goal 
of healthcare to preserve life. And every doctor life. is taught that phrase, right? Aren't they? From the, yeah. you know, that's just the foundation of all medical training, all mental yes. health training. You know, if you are helping people, you are preserving life. Do no harm. And so why, why isn't the baby in the womb treated as a patient mm. whose life we fight to preserve? You know, and so I just think that's even in, in yeah. using that phrase that abortion is healthcare. Well, why doesn't that baby have the opportunity to have healthcare yeah. and to have someone fight for their life? Yeah. If we're truly going to call it healthcare, then mm. to me, that doesn't really make sense logically or rationally. That's good. Yeah, when I think of, of scripture that, uh, you know, talks about God's idea for life. You know, first it starts in Genesis 1 where he says he's going to make man in his image. And so I think that is the foundational view that man is made in the image of God. And when you go from there and you just start looking at what God says about life throughout Scripture, you know, in Jeremiah 1.5, even before, you know, being in the womb, like Annie talked about, he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, I had consecrated you, I had appointed you to a prophet. Even before the idea of the womb, God has a plan, God has value mm. in that person. Even before conception. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. And then he goes on after that to, you know, the the thing about the baby leaping in the womb of Elizabeth in Luke 1, I think is great. And Isaiah says that, you know, you formed me from the womb. And so, I mean, there's just this idea all the way through Scripture of God has uh, a value for life even before there is the physical act of, right. of conception for, right. for humanity. And I think also... You know, as we talk about life and we talk about the value of life, God also gives a, not only positively does he tell us about these things, but then he negatively tells us about what are the repercussions when someone takes life. And in Genesis 9, 6, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his image. Again, he's, he's reestablishing the idea that man is created in the image of God, that right. he has value that other people don't. And by the time you get to Exodus 21, he's talking about what happened when men strive against each other and a w pregnant woman is hit and the child comes out. Well, if the child dies, it's it's a life for a life. I mean, that's the type of value that God puts on that life. If that child dies as a result of that, then there is supposed to be a life for a life for that. And the child is avenged just like any other person would have been through God's economy. And then by the time you get to Leviticus 18, you know, I think this is one of the hardest things I, I really think for a lot of us to understand is that we we want to believe that we live in this Christian nation. And I think it was started as a Christian nation, but now I very much believe that we live in a pagan nation. And when the when the promise, you know, when the people are going to take the promised land and God's telling them these things, and the one thing he tells them not to do in, in Leviticus 18, 21, he says, you shall not give any of your children to and offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. With the idea was, is that these people were going into pagan lands. And one of the things that marked pagan communities was they would offer their children as sacrifices because maybe their crops weren't good enough. And they thought, well, if I just offer a sacrifice, you know, God will be the, you know, the God of this and the God of that will, will be, um, you know, eased and I will get better crops. And God says, that is what the pagans do. I value life. You shall not do those things. Okay. And I mean, I just see what we see as the abortion issue in here is no more than just sacrificing our children back to to some deity, and, and and for most of most of the people, it's not to Moloch; it's to themselves. They're their own gods. They're their own determiner of what and right and wrong is. And so I will, I will uh, sacrifice my child on the on on the idol of comfort. You know, if you go into like Guttmacher's um, 
statistics on abortion, you know, more than like 73% of, of people that have the ladies that have abortion say that, you know, it just wasn't the right time for them, or it would have been an economic hardship, or it would have been something to go that way. And so what they do is they sacrifice their child on the altar of comfort or on the altar of finances or on the altar of their career. When in reality, God says, no, when, there, when there's life there, there is value and God has a plan for that life. And, and as, as uh, image bearers of God, we do not get to determine when life begins and when life ends. That's, that's totally up to God. Yeah. And so that, that was the next question that I, that I had is, would we not all agree that God gives life? So if God gives life, then would we not deduct from that 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 is God's and God's alone right to do? Now, obviously we know that when a, a sperm meets an egg, that is what we call conception. But yet that never forms into what we know as a child unless God allows that to happen. And so when we think about, if we can agree on the fact, if Christians can agree on the fact that God is the one who has the right, and the only one that has the right to give life, would he not also be the only one that should take life? Now, you can, you, people could make the argument, well, what about war? Okay, that's a completely different way uh, of, of talking about life, and that's another issue for another podcast that's a very different issue. But when it comes to a child, this is what I really struggle with wrapping my head around. We live in this society that wants to make people comfortable. We live in this society that doesn't want people to suffer. We have causes all over the place. Save the, save the turtles. Save the whales. Save the tigers. Do not let them die. And I can't quite wrap my mind around why that wouldn't apply to humans. And people go to great lengths to save whales. They do. They go to great lengths, and they're passionate about it. And I'm not opposed to saving the whales. I, they're a creation of God. But how we can feel that it's okay to, to, to kill a child... Or, or to not do everything we can to make to, to make a child have the ability to live blows my mind. Just recently, two weeks ago, I did a funeral for a couple that I've been meeting with almost every week for the last four months. My wife and I have, have ministered to them, and they found out when they were about five months pregnant that this child had some very, very major medical issues that was going to make the possibility of it living outside of the womb for any period of time, slim to none. And I walked with this couple, I watched this couple walk through this process, never giving consideration to ending that pregnancy because they understood that it's God's job to give life, God's right to give life and to take life away. And a really cool story came from from this and some amazing things to watch this this couple's faith grow through this process and they're hurting so badly just met with them again yesterday my wife and I did and they're hurting so bad they got to hold their baby for 24 hours but the baby died in the womb before it came out and their goal was to be able to hold their baby 
while it was living. And that child lived for 37 weeks inside of that mother and died two and a half hours before it was delivered. And it lived the life that God chose it to live. And it went to the zoo with its family. He went to the zoo. Little Judd went to the zoo with his family. Uh, little Judd was, was in his mama kicking around when she was baptized here at the church. This was a beautiful example of parents not doing what was comfortable, but understanding the sovereignty of God even when it's hard and painful even when it doesn't seem that there's a chance the child's going to live. Okay, so we've talked about parental notification being part of this amendment. We've talked about uh, abortion clinic safety and sanitation, and we've talked about restrictions on second and third trimester abortions. We've talked about when life really begins. We've talked about the fact that science does not support the fact uh, anything other than the fact that life begins as conception, that used to be an argument that is no longer uh, arguable. And the fourth part of this amendment is informed consent. And what that means is simply this, that women need to know who's doing the surgery and the risks that are involved in it. What input do you all have on that part of this amendment? For me, this piece was one of the most um, significant and weighty parts of the amendment because I think as a mental health provider, as a healthcare provider, that informed consent is really important. Um, and so there are a few things that really have to take place um, in order for informed consent to not be violated. And again, this just goes back to that foundational part of being a healthcare provider is that we do no harm, and that we always do good. And informed consent is a really important part of that. So for informed consent to happen, the intervention has to be described. Whatever is going to take place in that room has to be fully known by the patient and described by the doctor. And um, just in listening to stories from abortion doctors and women who were in those types of situations, we know that that's not happening, that women aren't being... Um, allowed all of the information about what is truly going to take place when that abortion is performed. Um, the, we know that for informed consent to take place, that the patient needs to be making a completely voluntary decision. Of course, unless it's an emergency situation or they're not able to speak for themselves because of some right. medical emergency. But in this type of situation, a woman, if they're choosing an abortion, should it should be a completely voluntary experience. And again, when you hear stories from abortion doctors, they're given a manual of what they can say and what they can't say. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, I listened to a story just recently about a, a ex-abortion doctor, and she got removed from her position because she said too many times, you know, it just seems like you're a little bit unsure about this. Wow. Why don't you take some time and think about it and come mm. back next week? if this is still what you want to do. And she was asked to leave because she said that too many times. Wow. So that really seems to indicate that in some clinics, there's a deep sense of coercion happening because abortion is a moneymaker. There's a Absolutely lot of money to be is. made in that industry. And so there really isn't a voluntary sense in many of those clinics. Um, alternatives need to be discussed for informed consent informed consent to take place. So, mm -hmm. you know, just the, the alternative of carrying the child giving the baby up for adoption, things like that um, really aren't discussed in an abortion clinic. Again, those are things in the manual that you're not allowed to talk about. 
um, women need to be informed about the side effects and the risks. Um, one third of women experience post-abortion complications, whether that's mm. emotional or physical. And so if a woman knew there's a one in three chance that you are going to have a serious complication after this abortion takes place, you know, I feel like that that would really sway their decision making. And so those things need to happen. And then um, we really, the doctor really needs to elicit the patient's preference. What do you want to do in the situation? What do you feel like the best decision is here? And, and so I think just that informed consent and really seeing that solidified is so important. Mm -hmm. um, even for a woman to be able to see her baby, to have an ultrasound and to be able to see the baby. Yeah. Studies show that if a woman has an ultrasound, 50% of them will make the choice to carry that baby full term. And that's wow. just them being aware that there is mm -hmm. a baby, there is a yes. life that I can see and connect with. And this is not yes. the choice that I want to make. And so mm. I really think that informed informed consent piece is so important. Yeah. Whatever a woman ends up choosing, they need to know and be making an educated decision. That's right. You know, you mentioned uh, hearing about a, a, a former abortion doctor and the, the reason for her dismissal. And I was just recently listening to a radio program and a lady was sharing who worked in an abortion clinic and she shared all of the things that they were told to tell the patients. And so many of the things were either misleading or, or just downright not true. Uh, some of the manipulative practices blew my mind. And this wasn't hearsay. This is a, a lady who walked through it and all of the things to say to push these women towards going through with the abortion. And that just made my heart so sad and, and can't help but think if there was someone there to just be real with them. And I just know there are so many women out there who live in guilt from an abortion they had 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, 40 years ago. And, and, and God doesn't want us walking around with that kind of guilt. So what would you guys say to a woman? I know this is going off on a bunny trail for a moment, but what, what would a couple sentences you would say to a woman from a Christian perspective who has gone through the pain of an abortion and who every time they see a sign on the road that, that says abortion stops a beating heart or abortion is murder or, or any of those things, what would you say to a woman who may be listening to this podcast and she's just hurting knowing that she regrets the decision she made a month ago, a year ago, a decade ago? I would encourage her to tell somebody. Mm. That would be the first thing I would encourage her to do is to, to speak up and to find someone that she can share her story with who is a truth speaker, who, mm -hmm. will, who is on her side, who has her best interests in mind and her best interests in heart and who will... Um, be able to really, again, to proclaim justice to her because justice is what Jesus won for us on the cross. Justice is that her sin is paid for and that she is forgiven and that mm -hmm. 
believing that that sin is too great to be forgiven is saying that Jesus wasn't quite enough, that his death wasn't quite enough. And it's almost prideful in a sense, like, well, Jesus's death was good enough for all these other people's sins, but my sin is so great that it's not enough for me. And and I think those thoughts are really hard to sort through on your own. And so that's why I would encourage her first to to talk to someone about it and to speak up and to share, Um, because shame has a really hard time surviving in environments of empathy. That's right. Oh, that's really good. Really good. Okay, so parental notification, abortion clinic, uh, safety, uh, restriction on second and third trimester abortions, informed consent, and then the last part of this. And Matt, I'm going to have you read the amendment here in just a minute. But the last part of this states that the state won't fund abortions that state money will not be used for abortions. And I know there's a lot of arguments out there. Oh, well, they they only do that in certain circumstances. And that very well may be true, but this would say that that is not proper use of taxpayer money. So Matt, would you just take a moment and read, because there's a lot, I mean, I've talked about what it covers, but would you read the actual wording of the amendment that people will vote either yes or no on on August 2nd? Because Kansans value both women and children, the Constitution of the state of Kansas does not require government funding of abortions and does not create or secure a right to abortion. To the extent permitted by the Constitution of the United States, the people, through their elected state representatives and state senators, may pass laws regarding abortion, including, but not limited to, laws that account for circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape or incest or circumstances of necessity to save the life of the mother. So now we know what the amendment is, and and hopefully there's clarity on that in case you had questions on that. I want to shift gears here, and we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to shift gears here because I think there's some pertinent questions that, that I ask you. How should we talk with those people who are proponents of abortion? In other words, people who are planning on voting no on August 2nd. What questions do we need to be asking them? What And what effect does our approach have on them? Well, I, I think the first thing to do is to find out the worldview that the person has, um, where they're coming from. You know, when I went to the when I went to the pro-abortion rally that was held in Hayes before Roe v. Wade was overturned, um, you know, I got in various conversations. And, you know, when you just step back and look at the worldview that people were coming through, it's important, I think, to to identify, first of all, where they stand. And, you know, what I heard most of the time in the conversations I had was there's really, in the conversations I was having, there was really four worldviews being um being ex, uh, espoused out there. The first one was was the worldview I was coming from, which was the God of Scripture determines life and, and death. The second one was, and now remember this is before Roe versus Wade was overturned, was that the government is the one who can determine this for us. We don't need God. We can have separation of church and state, which has nothing to do with what most, most people actually believe it does these days, but that the government can determine the rights of when life can begin and those type of things. And so the question I would ask that person, and I did ask is, so you would really have no problem then if the government overturns Roe v. Wade with the government then saying abortion is not a right. Well, of course, when that was asked, of course, then that was no longer valid. You know, they wanted to go somewhere else. And the other question I would ask those people is I would say, okay, knowing the history of the United States, then you really had no problem with slavery because the government determined that a person was not a person, that they were property, 
Now, obviously, you would be for slavery then if you believe that the government actually could determine rights and end rights. And of course, they, you know, the image of God started coming out of them right away. Oh, no, that's unjust and everything. And I said, well, from your worldview, how can you substantiate that that's unjust? And I would just take them back to the idea of you are, the image of God is coming out of you. you God is just coming out of you, even though you don't want to, you don't want to hear it. It's the Romans one that you're just suppressing the knowledge of God. And the second thing I would hear is that it's my choice right? This is my choice. It's my body. I'm going to do with my body what I want to do. And you know, one of the most disarming things that I found when I talk to a person like this is the first thing I would say is, oh, wow, great. I'm pro-choice as well. But let me tell you what I mean by pro-choice. What I mean by pro-choice is that I believe that no matter what, and one of the arguments I've seen even by, from people I know is that, you know, I woke up one day and my daughters aren't going to have the same rights that I have. And I just think, I'm just blown away by that that type of logic because in reality, the the type of choices that that people have, unless there's an issue of, of rape or incest, are all still really the same. Number one, I think the choice that we can all agree on is that you know what we should abstain from any type of sinful be, uh, behavior outside of of marriage that we all know can result in a pregnancy. We all still have that choice. We all still have the choice if you are going to to uh, go into that type of activity to use protection. I mean, those are things that can be done. All of us know these things. I mean, this is not like it's, it's rare out there. We have the option of adoption. We have the option of actually keeping the baby. And I would tell people, I am pro-choice in those four areas. The only one I am not pro-choice in is the area of you to destroy the life of that baby. And, and a lot of them would, they, they've never thought they've ever, and you know, I had, I had women tell me, I've never had a person come out here and just talk to me like this as a Christian. And it wasn't anything that I was saying overly nice. I was just having a conversation back and but forth. But you also weren't saying it with hatred. No, not I at know all. you, Matt, yeah. and, and you weren't saying that with hatred. Yeah. So that leads me to this question mm-hmm. Where have Christians gone wrong in approaching the abortion issue? Well, I I will I will take this two different directions. Number one, I think that what you are seeing right now going on, even the divide within a lot of people within the church, is that ideas have consequences. And when we grow up and we go to, you know, uh, to public schools and the dominant, um, the dominant worldview is, you know, uh, neo-Darwinian evolution, um, that we're all just evolved from fish and we have no transcendent value in these things, this is the end result of what you're seeing from those ideas that are just manifesting themselves. And then from the other from the other side, I think from Christians who are, um, I think they've been lulled into the idea that we're always to be nice, and that that uh, you know that we're to be meek, and yet meekness is not weakness. And you know we can be meek in a way that is still, I mean Jesus was meek, and yet at times he flipped over tables. And I think a little more Christians need to become a little bit more ready to flip table. I mean we're talking about life and death here. We are not talking about. Uh, how we conduct communion on a Sunday, or what worship songs we sing. We are literally talking about life and death. And I think a lot of Christians get lulled into this idea that they can be neutral. They think there's neutrality in this world. They think, I can stay right in the middle. I don't have to, you know, I know that I say I'm a Christian, but I don't want to offend my neighbors or anything, so I'm just going to stay in the middle ground here. I can be neutral. And yet over and over in Scripture, you know, right now we're going through the book of James in in Bible study, and he and in James, he's laying out in chapter four the difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. There is no wisdom in between there. It's either one or the other. You know, you either have Christ or you have chaos in your life. There is no in between. And I think a lot of Christians 
have been lulled into the idea that we just got to be nice. We just have to agree with everyone. And we just have to, to be this meek person who just takes everything. And I think that that is, I think all of these things have just come home to roost all at one time. And I think that a lot of people got uh, this issue really snuck up on them, I think, because when, when the Supreme Court settled Roe v. Wade in 1973, a lot of people didn't have to really take sides on this. They could say, well, Roe versus Wade did this. You know, there's really nothing I can do about it. But now this issue got thrown back into our community. It's here. We're dealing with it now in our community because this now became a local issue. And a lot of people are just, um, you know, they're just not ready to count the cost. You know, we talk about it in Scripture. Have you counted the cost of what it, what it is to be a Christian when you walk through the door? And a lot of them raise their hands and they say, I've counted the cost. And yet when it comes to something so simple as standing up for life, they, they won't stand. And in reality, this is going to be, I think, as the church moves forward, the more secular this nation gets, this is going to be one of the smaller things the church is going to have to deal with, mm -hmm. one of the smaller things the church is going to have to stand for. And if you're not willing to stand for this, you won't stand for anything. And so I would just encourage Christians to be bold, to really, if you're going to be a Christian, start living like one, because this is going to affect your life. And be bold in your proclamation, do it in love, but do it with the idea that this is something that is truly amazing. If it's important to God, it should be important to us. And God says that he created people in his image and there are penalties for these things. I mean, there are, that this is a real situation that, um, you know, that is, is really just, uh, you know, as Jess talked about, it's just injustice going on. We hear a lot about injustice. There could not be any more injustice in our culture right now than the taking of innocent life that's going on by all, you know, by some numbers anywhere between 600,000 and a million babies per year. Ladies? I would say, as Christians, we should not start our sentences with, I think, I feel. They should be with, God says. And if we do that, that means we have to actually study it. We have to actually know it. And it's amazing to me how many of us don't. Yes, this is what the church says I should believe, right, but, right. but go seek that and right. then use that to stand upon, I guess is what I would say. And if I do that, it, it, a lot of times I think we're going to have to go back to the very beginning, back to the basics of, you know, you hear my body, my choice. Well, what does God say our bodies are? Are they not temples? Mm -hmm. You know, do you, do you think that that's something God wants to happen within a temple? I mean, and look who, how upset and who Jesus... And bodies belong to, Annie? Right, exactly. They're, do they real? Are they really ours? They're not. It's not mine. Right. I did not produce this. I did not create this. Um, so I guess for me, it's it's going back to standing upon the word because there there is no there is no wiggle room for me in that. Mm -hmm. It it is God's word, and that is it. Where if I went upon my feelings or what I think, well, that's going to continually evolve and change. Yep. And um, so I guess that's probably what I would say is I would start with, as Christians, we have got to be armed with the Word of God, um, and not as a attack mechanism, but as a foundation for what we believe and what we stand upon. And um, I don't know. So that's kind of what, I guess that's kind of my thoughts mm -hmm. on it. Not nearly as long as, as Matt's, but... That's okay. Just to kind of um, agree with the things that have already been said, but also just to a different perspective that sometimes I have to remind myself of in this conversation, because as we talk about this issue, it is really easy to become emotionally charged yes. and it's easy to get angry. Mm -hmm. And that is a, a right and understandable feeling 
an emotion to have in this situation. And so something that's helpful for me to kind of draw myself back to being in a headspace where I can have a helpful conversation with someone who doesn't have the same worldview as myself is to remember and even just reflect on what would it truly be like to live a life without hope? If I didn't truly believe that something good can come from every difficult circumstance, Mm -hmm. if I didn't truly believe that heaven was going to be my eternal home, if I thought that earth was it, you know, this is as good as it's going to get. And so I'm going to do everything I can to experience the most pleasure and freedom and happiness that I can, because this is, you know, for many people, earth is as close as they're ever going to get to heaven. And so to, to really reflect on that and start from that headspace as we do engage in those conversations, I think can just be helpful for me to ask myself, what, what are, what is this person seeking freedom from? Freedom from stress, freedom from abuse that Mm -hmm. they've experienced, freedom from somebody always telling them what to do, freedom from sadness, whatever it is. You know, I think we're all seeking freedom in one way or another. Um, And, you know, studies show that people always perceive themselves to be doing a little bit better than the average person. You know, Mm -hmm. like, well, I could be healthier, but I'm probably a little bit healthier than my coworker. Or like, I could probably be a little kinder, but I think I'm more kind than the average person, you know? And so I think we all kind of already feel like we got it a little bit more together. We're a little bit smarter. We know the Bible a little bit more. We're a little bit more open-minded or whatever it is. And so to just kind of come at it from that place of humility and being a really good listener, but then to follow through with that proclamation of justice and truth as a conversation starter for something even bigger than the abortion issue, but an opportunity to introduce somebody to Jesus. Yeah. Well, as we, as we wrap this up, I want to challenge our listeners with a couple things. First of all, you know, Matt hit on the fact that, that it should make us angry. You know, anytime that God's word is being abused, anytime that, God is saddened. That there's a righteous anger. Matt talked about Jesus overturning tables, and there's a time for that. Here's the tricky part for us as followers of Jesus. As we come across as, if we come across just as angry, vengeful, hateful Christians, then, then how is that going to draw people to God? We've got to we can be righteously angry about this issue and still, and Matt referred to this too, and still project love and still speak the, speaking the truth in love. And, you know, Matt, Matt said, you know, we need to make sure that we are being truthful with people. We need to make sure that we're not shying away from it. And and Annie, what I hear what I hear you saying is that it's it's vital that we know God's word and what God's word says. That that we're not our own. We're God's. We belong to God. And we're born with this idea that we want to be independent. We want to do it all ourselves. We want to make our own decisions. And we all know how that turns out. When we become God, when we become our own God, when we're the CEO of our life. It never works out well. 
And so I think a big part about this for people who, who say they're Christians is submission to God. And I have no doubt, it doesn't matter what four people sitting around a round table say on a podcast, if people aren't seeking God. And so that's what I want to encourage you to do. Here's one more thing I want to leave you with, and this is something that I would like maybe at a later date for us to, to, to flesh out a little bit. But if we are going to sit here and say, God values life, if we're going to sit here and say that God creates life, that God gives life, that God takes life away, that's God's job, God's right, and not ours. If we're going to sit here and say women should choose life, even if it's inconvenient, even if there's pain associated, even when there's there's horrific pain associated with a pregnancy from different things, if we are going to preach that they should value life enough to allow God to have this child come into the world, what are we going to do about it when they can't raise this child on their own? What are we going to do about it when they can't afford to buy baby formula for that baby? What are we going to do about it when they're struggling with uh, being a single parent? What are we going to do about it? Because we can sit here and all day long say, don't have an abortion, choose life, choose life, choose life. What are we going to do to adopt that child if they say, I just can't do it? What are we going to do to aid, support, and encourage these mothers who choose life. Because we can sit here and we can we can blow our holy horn about don't have abortions. But if that's where it ends for us, we're wrong too. And so that's something I want to challenge us. What are we as the church, the church universal, what are we supposed to do if the yes vote comes, less abortions happen, and there are babies born to mothers who were not planning on this? The church, not the state, the church needs to take the lead in that. So with that, I want to thank you guys so much for your time. I want to thank everybody listening to this. Thank you for taking the time just to listen to our perspectives on this. Listen to what God says about life through his scriptures and encourage you to pray about this. And we encourage you to go out and vote yes on August 2nd. And we know that lives will be saved because of it. But then we have work to do following that. So with that, thank you for joining us for the C3 podcast. And pass this along to anyone you feel it may help. Anybody that you think might need this perspective. And we appreciate you taking the time to listen.